and welcome to another episode of Go Out and Talk to Strangers. I am Adi, the Nomad Architect, and this is the place where I'm sharing with you ideas and inspiration, hosting founders, entrepreneurs, and extremely talented people to share their experience with us. And today, we are very lucky to have with us Bernd. Hi, Bernd. Hello, Adi. Hello from Yucatan. I must say that I'm very excited to have you on the show. I've been to your talk uh, last year in Tulum, and I was completely amazed by your knowledge and the stories you shared. So thank you for taking the time to be with us today. We are going to talk about unique community-like structures of the forest, the similarities to human communities, and the Mayan ways of doing things. I'm very excited about it. Well, thank you for the opportunity. There are not so many people interested in this approach, and I think it's a very important question nowadays that we are facing the obvious need to restructure our societies. Especially in, in this time in history that is so weird and new, I, I really hope that this talk will inspire people to have a fresh perspective on the way we live life and the way we can learn and imitate the wisdom of nature. So you grew up in Germany, but today you're living in Mexico, in Yucatan Peninsula. Let's understand that first. Well, there is a connection because uh, I grew up in the countryside. I was born in the port of Hamburg with a lot of international influence, but My parents lived right outside the city where there's a big green area that is completely protected from the growth of the city because that area was the first in the world to create big forest tree nurseries. And the restoration of German forests was started from there. It's an area where millions, hundreds of millions of forest trees are produced every year, have been produced over the past 170 years. When my grandfather traveled, took me along traveling through Germany, he gave me the impression that about half the forests of Germany had passed through the hands of my family. And I grew up in the middle of these trees. Wow. So uh, that was quite an upbringing. There were not many children around because uh, we lived in the fields and it was hectares of trees alone. And uh, when I was asked to take over the family business, I said, well, as far as I can see, my grandfathers and my father have done a very good job and Germany is full of forests nowadays. But how about the rest of the world? Mm. And uh, then I took off and to look for another place to, to deal with the same issue. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking from the basics, uh, when you say forest, a lot of people would say, oh, a forest is just a, a group of trees. But nowadays we know it, it's much more complex and rich than this. So how do you define a forest? How would you... Because I guess most of our listeners, they're not coming from that area. Yeah. Um, now, I was trained as a forester at some point, and I must say... Uh, at the Forest University, they have a limited view of what forest really is. And in general, internationally, there is no clear definition of the term, and that is part of the confusion. Mm -hmm. uh, there are natural forests, so-called old-growth forests all over the world. They are very specific to the site. They have developed over thousands, ten thousands, maybe millions of years sometimes. 
and they have entered a very deep relationship with all aspects of the environment. Now, these forests we hardly understand. They are very, very complex. They are at least as complex as human society, as global society is. Mm -hmm. uh, we may later touch some of these aspects, one, why there is so much complexity. So these old growth forests, they should really be named by a different term. Uh, they are not what the foresters define as a forest. Mm -hmm. And the foresters usually say, well, you plant any amount of trees, you fill a hectare with many trees, and that's a forest. But that is a plantation. Mm. And this forester definition of a forest has serious limitations. And when you don't ask a forester and you ask a normal person, or you ask a philosopher, or you ask a poet, they will always tell you, no, the forest is much more than the sum of its trees. So the real issue to understand is what's the more, what's the difference between this one forest, the primordial forest, and the man-made forest that is just the sum of the trees. What is the more that makes it a forest and not a plantation? And that is an essential thing to understand nowadays as we are facing the destruction of forests worldwide and we have to create new forests and so what do we recreate? Do we just plant trees? Or what do we have to recreate? It's an unanswered question in, in universities, at least, I believe. Mm -hmm. So what do you think we need to create? Well, I think we have to go deep into what, uh, what a forest is by trying to understand the way forest functions. And the forest functions through relationships. Uh, it's not about the individuals. There are obviously individuals that can be quite amazing. Uh, there are fabulous trees. Any tree by itself is in a way very special and fabulous. But what makes the forest is the relationship between the trees. And the main relationship is defined probably by how do these trees grow? And most people have no idea how a tree grows. Everybody has seen trees, but uh, I like to ask the question, well, what is mm -hmm. the tree made of? What composes a tree? Mostly you get the answer, oh, it's made from the soil. <laughs> and then my next answer is, well, so do we have a deep hole beside every tree that's growing? Do we have deeper holes between the big tree? We obviously don't, because there is a contrary effect. Where trees grow, we have an improvement in soil. We have more soil. Soil builds up with the time. So it can't be from the soil. And then I like to look at it from the chemistry and say, what are the com chemical components of a tree? And you know, 99.8% of the chemical components of a tree, they come from the air. From the air? Yeah, 99.8% of what composes a tree comes from the air. Huh. And that, I think, is the basic thing to understand and that is not taught in school for some reason very strange why don't they teach that in school they teach chemistry they teach all sorts of things but to understand what makes a tree i think is quite essential because you go a little further and then you ask well what am i made of and our own composition is somewhat similar we are all mainly made of air 
the first thing the mechanism the the tree creates is a mechanism to capture all these elements from the air which are hydrogen oxygen carbon a bit of nitrogen and a few trace elements and once this mechanism is established mm. through what we call photosynthesis the tree has the capacity to dissipate the energy it needs to capture these elements photosynthesis captures energy from the sun from sunlight mm -hmm. and the energy is used to capture the other elements and then the tree in the leaves starts composing its structure and then there is obviously a 0.2% of elements that are not in the air and the real secret about trees is how does the tree manage to get this amount of specific elements the 0.2% which seems to be nothing they are small atoms small molecules of all the many 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 substances that are spread around the world and the tree is able to find them and to bring them into the tree structure how does the tree do that that to me is like the, the biggest secret of all are they found in the soil? Yes. Do you find them in the soil? Yes, you okay. find you find them in the soil, mm -hmm. you find them in the rocks, you find them in the water, you can find them anywhere depending on the site. So, uh, it's very easy to access anything that's in the air, you know, that's a, a genius structure. You build a forest or a tree from the air and the air is accessible anywhere and anything spreads out through the air. So the elements come to you when you mm. start building a tree. That's genius. But in whatever is in the soil and in the rocks is fixed in its place. It doesn't spread around. You know, you don't have a little uh, atom of magnesium walking around on the forest floor saying, "Here I am. I'm looking for a tree to catch me." How about that? <laughs> they don't do. They, they don't do that. So how does it travel? Yeah, you need an infrastructure, mm. uh, and there the forest all of a sudden becomes like our human uh, society. We need infrastructure. We need streets, we need transport systems, we need administrations, we need companies to do commerce. Uh, we need PR companies to send out the message here that there are some trees here who need something. Uh, do you catch the message? Do you know where the magnesium is? Could you send some over? Uh, and so on. Get some from Amazon. Yes, it, there is a sort of Amazon in the forest. So, and that is in the in the soil. That is the unseen forest below the tree. The forest is really composed of two parts. One is the visible part of the forest. What we consider the forest are the tree trunks, the trees you walk through, the uh, the trees that move with the wind. But that is only 50% of the forest. And the other 50% in terms of biomass is under the ground. It's mm -hmm. unseen. It's unconscious to a large degree so that is composed of the basic infrastructure the road system mm. which is built by fungi oh they're mushrooms okay every tree has a, a network of some 50 kilometers of mushrooms connected to it a mature tree now imagine a forest with let's say 1000 or 2000 trees per hectare every single one of those has 50 kilometers of mycelium mushroom threads they are the roads so they connect mm. over very wide areas and they interconnect so this is an endless system they get anywhere if the magnesium that we are looking for is 
two kilometers away, but the tree's own system only reaches, let's say, 200 meters away. Then it connects to the other tree systems, and the message will still get through. So part of the infrastructure is a communication infrastructure. And I even like to say that the World Wide Web was invented by the forest. It existed long before we discovered it. And we should really call it the Wood Wide Web. And some scientists do that. And they have found out that this Wood Wide Web works exactly like the Internet. It has hubs, it has an infrastructure, it needs servers, energy, and so on and so forth. So you have a road system, you have a communication system. And then you need just the mechanisms to do commerce over them. These, this is all done by the microorganisms. The microorganisms come alive in between the roots of the trees, the soil, and this infrastructure network. And we know very little about these microorganisms because they are visible mostly. Some of them are extremely small. Uh, they are bacteria, they are other fungi, they are viruses. Corona is a microorganism. The viruses play an important role in the system. Mm -hmm. They all have different functions, many, many different functions, and they are extremely well coordinated. Back to the question, what makes a forest more than the sum of the trees? It's that coordination. It's the coherence between these trillions of living beings. There are many, many more living beings in any forest than there are stars in the universe, mm -hmm. or then there are grains of sand on the beaches of this world. So we are talking about a tremendous living network. And that is really the main message that comes from the forest. Mm. The world is not just what you see. Most is below the surface. Below the surface, what's mainly happening is relationship, relationship management, and you are part of that, and you're a result of that relationship management. And man, please realize that, because you're dependent on it. There's no other way to be, because every other living being on Earth uh, only exists because of being part of this living network. So are we. But with our modern Cartesian science, we have tried to create an image of being superior to this and existing outside this network. Uh, that is the famous reductionist view of mechanist science. And that is totally untrue. That is, uh, that is a simplification uh, that makes no sense. There are simplifications that make sense, but that makes no sense. And that is dangerous. And all the crises we have nowadays stem from that, all of them. Uh, even the present corona crisis, or the perception, mm -hmm. rather, of the corona crisis, this panic perception, stems from a completely different, from a completely wrong or lopsided or simplified reductionist view of what the microorganism world is. Mm -hmm. I think most people, when you tell them microorganism, they, they don't really know what to expect. Yeah, people are uh, very uneducated to that respect. And, that is one of the major defects of our school systems and of our science. Because uh, mm -hmm. the rules of reductionism were imposed on science, and that means basically that there is no interest in coherent mechanisms. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you understand that the world is made of relationships, well, then the big, uh, biggest issue is really what makes the relationships coherent and uh, what are these mechanisms? Mm-hmm. So uh, if nobody looks at that, obviously, they will not realize. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. There is a big gap between, um, well, the wisdom of nature and uh, what we can learn from it than what we're being taught. Yeah. Even the way our economy is structured nowadays, um, it's clear that we need to change that. So I, I want to go again to that moment of you choosing to go to a different area in the world. Uh, you got, you went to Mexico and you even restored a rainforest by yourself. Is this right? Yeah, this is right. And uh, this has to do with what I told you before. Mm-hmm. Uh, because rainforest has restoration had been seen as something impossible, really. Some ecologists pretended that you would need periods like 600, 800 years to restore a rainforest. Mm. And in a way, they were right, because if you leave a, the land by itself and just wait for the to- forest to grow by itself, it may take that long after total destruction. But I come from a different background. I, I grew up with trees that were planted to make forests, and they made some of the most fabulous forests in the world. Uh, Germany is known for that. So I simply believed that there is a human intelligence factor that can enter there, and that through understanding how the forest grows, we could shorten the period from 600 years to a few years, maybe. Mm. So I tried. Mm-hmm. And in the, be- in the beginning, I failed, and I failed like all the forestry programs, because in the beginning, I just did what, what everybody thought had to be done to plant a rainforest. And the result was miserable. It was really miserable. It cost me a lot of money, a lot of effort, and the trees hardly grew. We could hardly make them survive. So I spent time really meditating about what was going on. And the decision I took mm-hmm. at that time it was to move into the forest and live there. So I have to become part of this to really understand what's going on. And uh, I knew from the best foresters that I had met in the world, indigenous foresters, German foresters, there are many, many different kind of people who deal with the forest. I knew that there is one main factor that really makes a difference in the quality of forestry, and that is an intimate human relationship with it. When you're really in it, when you know the names, by, the trees by their names, when you feel the forest, mm. when, you, when you sharpen your senses, when you hear things in the forest that others can't hear, then you can come up with ideas that may change the dynamic. And so I did, and I discovered that I really had to concentrate on the invisible world, on this, uh, all this that is below the ground, on the... Uh, on the invisible forest. Mm-hmm. And I started capturing these living beings, microorganisms. How do you capture them? It's, uh, it's just like going fishing. You need bait. Every living being wants to eat. <laughs> uh, every living being has a preference for one substance, uh, that is sugar. Okay. Uh, there's hardly anything in the world that cannot be attracted by sugar. Mm. started with different variations of sugars carbohydrates of different kinds and uh, put them out in the in the places where I thought the best microorganisms might be. 
little leftover pieces of forest under a very beautifully grown tree. Uh, I just went by intuition. What are the nice places? Into little caves in the ground where the microorganisms might have survived over a long period or whatsoever. Once I trapped microorganisms, well, mm -hmm. I couldn't see them. Sometimes I could see them. Uh, mushrooms, sometimes I could see. I could sometimes smell them. I saw that the food was gone or was being uh, consumed. And then I tried to reproduce these microorganisms and I combined them. I tried to bring them into a sustainable relationship. And I did that in a sugary solution of water. And with time, the whole period took me something like 14 years, mm -hmm. I found a mix that is stable, that I can reproduce to any quantity mm. uh, in water, and just feeding it some, some sugars. And uh, whenever I spread it out anywhere, it produces health and growth, and it produces a forest. And, uh, but even in, a, in an early stage of that process, I started spreading these microorganisms over my forest and immediately they started growing, immediately. So it was obvious that you had to plant the underground forest, the unseen forest, before the visible forest would grow. And that makes sense, you know, yeah. because it depends, the visible part depends on the invisible part. So how should a forester act? He should deal with the invisible part before he deals with the visible part. So, and uh, they have never looked into that. There's a big revolution going on now. Now there are researchers beginning to research mushrooms and microorganisms and trying to find out about the mechanisms. There are even researchers trying to identify the language of trees, and they are hopeful that they will be able to understand the language of trees, the way they communicate, the way they shout out into their network, hey, magnesium needed. Huh? Bring it over. Mm -hmm. And this becomes especially interesting when you look at the economics of the whole thing. Because any kind of coherent network of millions of relationships needs to be economically sound. There needs to be a mechanism to distribute the energy. The energy you can call money, sugar, or whatsoever. But they all depend on this money. And it somehow has to be distributed in a way that everybody gets his share, otherwise they would not be able to coherently cooperate. So how does this happen? Mm -hmm. And again, I looked at where does the money come from? And it's very obvious, trees produce sugars. Yeah, in, in the tree, you have water rising into the tree, and the water brings along, for example, the magnesium that was delivered to the roots, and you have sap flowing downwards, and the sap gets to the tip of the root, mm. and there is an administrator sitting down there, some kind of microorganism, probably looks like a bureaucrat, I don't know, <laughs> and they pay. They pay the magnesium with the sugar. And then there is another network distributing the sugar through the vast network so everybody gets a share. Wow. Otherwise, this could not work. And we know the tree produces the sugar, we know the, tree, the fl sugar flows down. We know it disappears in the network somehow. So the interesting research for the future is, wow, how is the sustainable economy set, econo economy set up? Because 
That's something we should copy copy for our own societies. Mm-hmm. That's exactly yeah. what we need nowadays. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how do they protect from disease? Why don't they have pandemics down there? What's happening? Sometimes they do. No. Uh, very limited pandemics. I've never heard of. There are little epidemics in mistreated forests. You know, okay. you spread a lot of poison over a forest. You you spread a lot of smog over a forest, and then you get. Uh, epidemic reactions Mm -hmm. but that is always the response to some very uh, nasty exterior factor in Mm -hmm. the forests themselves you don't have that not at all i want to ask you something about locality Um, let's say in architecture one of the most common mistakes that are being made is when people are treating the whole world in an identical way Although each area has its own unique identity, like materials, different climate, different ecosystems, and the building methods, they're completely unique. Is it the same in the world of forests? Do you feel that, like, say, um, the way you would create a forest in Germany is different from the way you would create it, one in Mexico? Yes. It, obviously, forests are extremely site-specific, as architecture should be. First of all, because of the energy balance, because when you don't use the local resources, you just waste energy. And it's all about using your energy in an economically sound way. When you don't use local resources, but bring in cement, concrete, steel from other parts of the world even, I mean, that's, yeah. that's not, not a sound strategy. Uh, while at the same time, you might have rocks and timber and so on available on the very same spot, which we could get without much energy expense. So the energy aspect is uh, maybe the main argument, and that is the main economic aspect. What is energy, what is economy about? It's about saving energy. It's about uh, doing what you want to achieve with the least energy possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for that, you have to be site-specific. That's the magical word. And obviously, Being site-specific, you create different forests through different mechanisms at different places of the world. It's very different to go on preparing the growth of a forest under a sheath of snow and ice that covers the areas, let's say, seven, eight months a year Mm. uh, than here in the tropics. But the principles I talked about, they are still all the same. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is this invisible part. Uh, there is the visible part and the relationship between the two is always primordial and there's always the dependency on what goes on under the ground. But these mechanisms under the ground may be quite different. I have worked, for example, in the high Himalayans at altitudes of 4,200, 4,400 meters. We developed an agricultural strategy for the high Himalayans that was in Ladakh, in in the small Tibet. Mm, I love this area. Yeah, and it it was fantastic work. And the people who were interested in that work, my students at that time, they were spiritual leaders of Tibet uh, because they had understood this issue of site specificity. And uh, they, they understood that through their history, there was proof that 2,000 years earlier or 1,000 years earlier, 
there had been vast forests in areas that were now desert-like. And they asked, well, this is mm -hmm. obviously not for physical reasons that they are not there, but this is an organizational issue. So what do we have to do? How do we have to organize ourselves? How do we have to confront what we find out there in nature to be able to restitute these forests? And that was extremely interesting. In the end, we talked about how to set up a modern-day monastery, a Buddhist modern-day monastery, because that's where the structure comes from, the thought structure, the perception. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So architecture, you started with the architecture argument. What is architecture? It has this introvert and the extrovert part. Uh, in the extrovert part, we try to make ourselves visible. It's like I define it very often as our third skin. Now we have our mm -hmm. personal skin, we have our clothes, and the, and the architecture is like our third skin. And with all these, we try to show the world who we are. We try to really express who we are. Yeah. And then there is this introvert part. And the introvert part goes into the knowledge, who am I? And, uh, and much in, of what we do in architecture is to try to support our own, own search for who we are. Uh, well, creating the cave we need to concentrate on who we are, uh, but also creating a structure that would be help us. We, we get lost in the immensity of structures, in the tremendous variability of structures that exists in the world, and we have to somehow reduce to dealing with some aspect of it. So when we construct, we construct an environment that helps us concentrate, that helps us define, okay, I will now look at the world or live this world this way. And this is extremely helpful. Mm -hmm. This is a principle that nature also applies. Mm. You can find this, the same principle in the forest. Interesting. You know, I feel like as a society in a modern world, um, we became so good in being individuals. Uh, we went from a tribal society to being very individual. And now we are almost like trying to find our way back into creating communities um, that are thriving and where we can support each other. And, you know, when you talk about the forest, it, it almost sounds like an utopic society where everybody help each other grow and, you know, bring the magnesium from two kilometers away. So if we had to, I'm just curious, let's say about Mayan cities, because it seems like in the old world, there used to be more harmony with nature. Yes, uh, there was. And that's why I'm probably here in Yucatan, because that, that was quite a story. I love stories. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Tell me. Uh, so I could have gone anywhere in the world. I could have selected any place. I could have ended up in, uh, let's say, in Ladakh. I could have been uh, in completely different environments with the Aborigines in, in Australia or, or whatsoever. I had a certain affinity to Latin America, a certain affinity which I couldn't explain. But then again, Latin America is so big, and uh, so where do I go? Do I go right into the Amazon rainforest? That seemed to be a bit complicated for me. 
mm-hmm. maybe too complicated. And then uh, I met a poet, one of the um, very best-known poets of Latin America, Eduardo Galeano, uh, a man who impressed me deeply through his poetry. Mm. And he was at the same time, he was not just a wonderful poet, he's Uruguayan, and, uh, or he was, he, uh, he died two years ago about, and uh, he was a very good analyst and historian of the history of Latin America. And I had the impression when I met him that he was really penetrating the essence of human society with what he was doing as a poet, as a journalist, as a historian. And uh, I was lucky to meet him personally and we had a bottle of wine together. We spent a whole night talking and I must have asked him so many questions that he became a bit tired of my questions at three in the morning or so. And uh, my last question was, but Eduardo, if all these wonderful things you tell me about the history of Latin America are true, why then do they say the Mayan civilization collapsed? And he looked at me, opened his eyes very big and said, I guess that's the question for you to answer. Go and find out. So, yeah, my life changed that very night. I remember I woke up very tired at eight in the morning and I started changing everything. I changed all my plans and I learned Spanish within one month. And uh, two months later, I was already in Mexico. And all I knew to do was had to do with trees. So I, I traveled through the country to see what are people doing here with trees. And I met the indigenous cultures and I tried to find out who are the most interesting indigenous cultures. And well, through a series of experiences, in the end, I settled down in, in Yucatan. And I decided to go very deep into the matter and spend five years living in a traditional Mayan community. I learned to become a Mayan farmer and uh, managed their forests with them. Uh, documented this, did experimentation on all aspects of tree planting and agriculture. Was it easy? You know, as an outsider going to an indigenous community, uh, what was the reaction? Well, we were very lucky. And here comes another story for you. I didn't really know how to do that. The only thing I knew was that I had to get away from reductionist science. I was trained as a natural scientist. Okay. And uh, I had gone... I had specialized in things like human genetics. You know, I was a top-notch g- geneticist. Mm-hmm. And I realized with all this uh, top-notch knowledge, I will not be able to change anything in the world. This is not the way to go. So I wanted to go into what we called action research. I said, no, instead of sitting in some university laboratory, I will just intermingle with the people and, and try to find out how how the relationships really worked. Mm-hmm. And then I moved into this community and uh, first my wife and my eldest daughter, who was at that time about one and a half years old, they were in the city of Merida. We had a little house there and I went into the village uh, during the week and started working. And then I said, well, I found a little hut there and I think we could stay there. Can I take you over the this Easter weekend to show you 
what I'm doing during the weekend, let's see if we can live there. So I, I tried to very carefully convince my wife to please join me. Hmm. Now she was pre- she was pregnant. Okay. And, uh, and the road to the village was 110 kilometers. And it was very, very bumpy, like smooth bumps. Mm-hmm. And we had this open car, the W Safari, like a little Jeep. And my little daughter was standing behind me and she, she loved the bumps. And she held on to my shoulders and she always shouted, faster, daddy, faster, I'm jumping. <laughs> it was really fun. You know? And my poor pregnant wife, she was sitting beside me and holding her belly. <laughs> and when we arrived... Due to this very intense treatment, I believe, we arrived and one hour later in a hammock in this place, my second daughter was born. Oh, my God. Wow. So the reaction of the people were, well, they're just people like we. They come, they have a child and they move move into a house like ours. Nothing was prepared, really. We had a hammock, we had a fireplace, we had a bucket to get some water. There was no running water. We had one light bulb in the house. Wow, what an icebreaker. (laughs) It was a great icebreaker. That's a really good one. And so we didn't know what to do. So this allowed us to really learn. And the people were so dedicated they realized that we were just like other young people who need to be taught how, needed to be taught how to do these things. So my children received a Mayan education. They were educated by the neighbors. And we, we were educated together with them. It was, inc- it was incredible. And it's the, I can tell you it's the best education I could ever imagine. Mm-hmm. It's in- incredible. Because in this indigenous society, every mother is every child's mother. Yeah, they are all fully responsible. Our children could jump out of the hammock in the morning and they'd say, bye-bye, daddy, bye-bye. And we wouldn't have to worry. Mm. And everybody in the street, which was not a real street, it's a very simple thing, there were no cars, everybody would look after them. And sometimes during the day, somebody would yeah. show up with my little baby on the arm and say, here she is, she just wants to say hello, she's well, bye-bye. <laughs> Always at five o'clock at night, someone would bring our children sometimes together, sometimes separated, and they would have been always well-fed. The clothes would have been washed. They would be clean, even though they spent all day playing in the dirt. And at five, they'd be back home, and that was family time. It was incredible. Wow. And it makes very strong individuals. They all became very independent, very autonomous, and I think they still live from that energy. Where are they living today? The eldest lives outside New York. The second lives in Paris, in the center of Paris. Mm -hmm. And she's the one who lives Paris as if it were the village. She uses all these aspects of village life, really. Really? Yeah. What do you mean? How can you live in Paris as if you're living in a village? That's interesting. Well, first of all, she is very culturally oriented. She is very musical and and, uh, people told her always well you should become a professional musician and she always said no 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 that's a dreary life i don't i don't want to live that and she decided to be a what they call a cultural manager and uh, Mm -hmm. for the past 17 years she's already been running the largest private music theater of paris and one of her principles was never to have a car, to live close to the theater, 
to treat everybody in the theater like family, uh, uh, be walking distance from her home, uh, so the children could come to the theater anytime and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, she selected all that so well that one of the nicest markets of Paris is on the way from her home to the theater. And so once I visited her, I, uh, I walked along with her to see the theater and we came through the market. And uh, I got stuck at this beautiful Parisian market and uh, started talking to the, uh, to the farmers there and looked at, oh, how wonderful cheese and so on and so on. And, and talking to the cheese lady, uh, she tried to convince me to try this and this and take this along. And I told her, uh, well, I can't really take that along because tomorrow I'm going to Mexico. I can't take this cheese on the plane. And she looked at me and said, oh, so you are Julia's father. <laughs> and this was in the middle of Paris. Wow. Yeah, this, uh, this was in the Césium. And I, I must have stared at her and said, how do you know? And she says, oh, everybody here knows, knows Julia. Mm -hmm. And everybody knows your story. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So wow. I thought, wow, this is village. Yeah, this is yeah. village. So yeah. then I asked Julia later, I said, Julia, these people in the market, they all know you. Well, obviously, she says, I walked by there every day, and that's my market. <laughs> so I, I must have again made big eyes. And she said, well, by the way, they all go to the opera, the farmers. Oh. I said, what? She said, well, at one moment, they asked me what I'm doing, and I told them that I was running operas and so on, and they didn't know what an opera was. They were farmers. And, well, uh, she took them to the opera. She trained them. She educated them, just walking by every day. And she says, many of these farmers now have opera subscriptions. They watch more operas than I do. Oh, wow. That's amazing. That's the power of village life, I would say. Mm -hmm. of, or one could say true community life, when you really focus on the essence of community. Mm -hmm. there's, this, there's a very strong uh, aspect to the way where we're going, right? It's almost like the main streets of a city. It's where you have the opportunity to have as many encounters as possible. And that's why a lot of people... Are, uh, choose to live in the city because they want to have the opportunity to interact with other people. I'm talking about walkable cities, not the American new ones, the ones that you can actually walk in. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's, it's a beautiful story. I love it. I wonder how it was like in, in the, in the ancient world. And that is back to your questions about why I do I live and work with the Mayans. That is the question I can best answer here, because it, being with the Mayans gives me access to these issues. And uh, now that's a big, big, uh, big topic we're moving into. Mm -hmm. uh, and it has to do with the Sumerian cities you mentioned. It has to do with the origin of mankind and the, the way man has been dealing with forging community structures into city structures and uh, that is my main topic in my uh, in my research let's dive into that on the one hand side we started reconstructing my mayan pre-hispanic mayan community 
because archaeologists don't do that. They just look at the temples and the pyramids and they look for graves and so on, and they never look into what really structures a society. So I started, I found the remnants of a small ancient village. There was not much left, but I could see that a village had been there. And uh, so I, some 15 years ago, I started reconstructing that village. I'm now sitting in the middle of this reconstruction. So wait, I want, I want to stop and ask you, what did you find? What was the thing that, what indicated? Uh, certain aspects of the landscape, the flatness of certain platforms that indicated that there had been house foundations, but you could only see okay. the flatness in the landscape. Uh, that in, did not seem to be natural. And I could only see that because I had worked in this environment for such a long time. Archaeology, I took archaeologists mm. there and said, well, what do you see? They saw nothing. Yeah? Mm. And I, I discovered remnants of old terracing systems. Now, terracing systems are part of water management systems. I found old foundations and we started excavating. And today we found that there had been lakes, lots of artificial lakes that we are reconstructing, mm -hmm. uh, many houses, uh, water management, infrastructure of different kinds. Yeah, anything you would need for a comfortable village living and even anything you would need for comfortable city life. And, uh, and then we went mm -hmm. into, well, how did they live here? What were the social dynamics in this place? Uh, what happened really in this village and with time we were able to reconstruct many of these things and uh, partially because I live here I live it all the time and I felt uh, decisions the way they may have felt these decisions maybe 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago we don't know because they're all human mm. uh, I don't think humans have changed so much over time they still have very similar needs and uh, capabilities and uh, yeah, that's where we are. And then we looked into the next level. So how did the communities relate between each other? Mm -hmm. And then we found very clear indications, for example, in the Mayan calendar. Uh, the calendar is a way to design the rhythms of life. So when you design the rhythms of life, you can add that on to the space that is created. The making of society is made of space, place, and time, or rhythm. Yeah? Space, place, and pace, one could say. I like this terminology mm -hmm. because it's the same terminology that is used by the forest to establish a forest. You can always define, you asked about the differences of forest. Well, they are always defined in terms of space, pace, and place. Mm -hmm. uh, place being the place you create. That's yeah, your house, basically. Your direct, your working environment your reductionist part of this big space that is around you. But still, the space has influence. Yeah. And then you determine the rhythms. Yeah. We do that as architects also. When we look at good architecture, it starts out with locating the building or the house in space. Mm -hmm. In former times, a lot of effort was taken for that. Uh, I, I did a lot of research in the old Celtic areas in, uh, in southern Germany, for example, and I looked into the Celtic traditions of how uh, their architecture evolved, because 
we still have the remnants of this very, very impressive architectures. The villages are extremely old. And I found out that the first thing the owner of a future house would do, he would construct a spiritual place, a little chapel. Mm-hmm. And in Celtic times, they were not Christian chapels, but they were like places for meditation. He would set up a specific place for meditating the area to determine the location and space his future house would have. And then when he went into the placemaking, into building the house, he looked into the rhythms of life and the space was defined in terms of the pace of the rhythms to live. Wow. That makes perfect architecture. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, the, uh, the forest does the same, the Mayans did the same. And so I'm trying to, to research this concept by reconstructing this community and we now relate this community to some of the major Mayan city ruins or center ruins that are world famous, but where people can't really explain uh, or archaeologists can't really explain what, what were they for, how did people use them. And I know nowadays how they were used and how people related their small villages with the big cities, at what rhythms they went there, why they went there, what they did there. And uh, the outcome is a view of a very dynamic, very energetic human society that lived over, Mm -hmm. that existed over thousands of years. And even though nowadays the first thing you read about the Mayan civilization is about its collapse, mm. that is exactly what did not happen. It never collapsed. It was collapsed. Mm. Yeah, it was killed. It was destroyed. Uh, it, our modern society is very short-lived compared to what the Mayans lived in. And the Mayans, they uh, existed here for from what we know, at least 3,000 years. Uh, and we don't know more because it's so difficult to find out anything older. So I found my own ways into relating it to what might have been there before. And that's another big, big topic. Mm-hmm. Because that has to do with how many civilizations have already existed on Earth, uh, what has happened to the different civilizations, how much do we rely on the knowledge of former civilizations and so on. And that relates the whole story, Mayan story to the Sumerian story, to the Mesopotamian and to the South Indian story and even to Eastern mm-hmm. Asia. Wow. So when you come to a place that it's so full of history and you, you read all that, you know, from finding the foundations and the landscape and, and now when you're trying to add a new layer to it, how does it look like? What are the things that you focus on? Um, at the moment, I'm trying to focus on getting people here to live it as a community. People who really have an understanding of mm-hmm. what this is all about. Yeah? Not just somebody who freaked out in modern society and wants to get into the forest. But no, I, I would like to get proactive community people here to create a community of, let's say, l- action researchers. Mm-hmm. Not easy to find. No? No, not easy to find. Uh, I'm surprised. Yes, I was too. I thought it was going to be easier. Uh, 
but they have all gone through our educational system, and it's very difficult to really let go all the uh, all that's been implanted in in our heads. Uh, this world is extremely ideolo- ideological. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love working with artists. I think the highest potential is with artists and designers. They are the ones who architects in part. They are, well, the design part, the designer architects. Mm-hmm. You, you know how split the the profession is yeah i do i escaped the other part of it yeah yes ex- exactly you know and you see with with this other part you can't you can't do this work no so yeah. um, i think that is for the moment the most important thing we we should achieve to go to the next level uh, i would like to share all that i found out in the past well they've been 40 years altogether and uh, get people to work on it live it do action based on it from different personal points of view because diversity is a very important aspect. Mm-hmm. And I would like to come to a point where we would reconstruct the general dynamics of the Mayan society. And this would allow us to show the dynamics of human civilization. I would say at least over the past 12,000 years. This is my my interest at the moment. Mm-hmm. But the day-to-day work here is just to farm, to, to get the terraces going. We, we rediscovered the old Mayan terracing system, a highly productive agricultural system, to get the water flowing in an area where water is extremely scarce, which is beginning now uh, to reconstruct a variety of different homes. The Mayan archi- architecture was very variable also. and. All that has so far been presented as Mayan architecture was very much influenced by colonial rule. It was imposed. It was not really Mayan. Lots of work to do. So how does it look like, the Mayan architecture? Well, for example, I built one house, which we call the House of the Deer. And it's built on the original cementations. In the beginning, I thought it was going to be a normal oval Mayan house structure. Uh, The oval structure is basic. They they don't use corners. They don't like corners. Mm -hmm. For very good reason, because it's a hurricane area. And uh, when you construct with corners, stability is much lower than with the oval shape. These houses are all very, very resistant to all kinds of storms and and hurricanes specifically. So then we realized that this oval structure uh, was not that simple. It was, it had all sorts of uh, add-on, add-ons to it, and it was besides a lake. <laughs> so I thought this was going to be a little pond, and we started excavating the pond. And over the hundreds of years, this pond had all had obviously been filled with rubble and soil and there wasn't anything visible in the end after many years of digging and we found the pond had been three and a half meters deep and the bottom was pure rock Mm. a pure rock bottom so nowadays this is a 15 meter swimming pool with two side lakes which we use to clean the water where we have a plant filter to filter the water and we even mm-hmm. found the old compost toilet uh, 
I can I can even show well I can't show exactly what the the toilet itself looked like but they used the compost toilet principle and we did our compost toilet on exactly the place where they had had one because when I designed the compost toilet and I had selected the place to put it I asked if uh, Mason how to do the floor of it because it's very essential to do a very exact floor construction uh, to separate fluids. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'll never forget this. I, I had to go to the city that day and left him alone and uh, trusted him that he would do it just exactly as I, as I told him. And the next morning I met him again and asked, uh, did you do the floor for the compost toilet? He said, no, I didn't. Why? Because it was already there. Mm. And he had measured it and he had, and all the indications I'd given to him were already in place, 100%. Wow. And we use it as it was. And it works. It's beautiful. It's very powerful. Yeah, we have done, had these experiences with different artifacts where, we, where I intuitively assumed that, for example, uh, we did the sweat lodge. Am I, we did the only. Rec- uh, reconstruction of a Mayan sweat lodge. Nobody knows Mayan sweat lodges. They're all gone. Isn't it the same as Temascal? It's similar. It's similar, but uh, Temascal is Mexican. It's not Mayan. Mm-hmm. And the Mayan tradition is gone. And even in the Mayan language, there's no word mm-hmm. left. So that's been gone for a long time. And uh, I, I believed that there the sweat lodge must have been at the core of the community. So I found the place, defined the place energetically, and I, uh, I knew that for a sweat lodge we would need a water source. And the water source, in this case, would have been one specific kind of water. The Mayans had different terms, seven different terms for different qualities of water. And for a sweat lodge, because of the ritual that they would conduct the healing ritual that they would conduct in the sweat lodge, they would use one specific kind of water, which they call mother's water or virgin water. Mm -hmm. And for that, you need a recipient that is called a chutun. Uh, I did a lot of research on these water recipients, and because it was only used for ritual purposes, this chutun would not have had to be very big. Uh, I did not know exactly what size, but there are very big chultunis and there are medium and small size. And I knew we needed a small one for this ritual. So we didn't find it. We couldn't find it because whenever we dug up something, we covered something else. And it's so difficult to find things in the landscape sometimes. So we finished the Temascal. And when it was gone and we wanted to plaster the front facade, the masons asked me to to put a post there for the scaffolding mm-hmm. and uh, I accepted and when they bore the holes for the post the iron rod disappeared it sunk down two and a half meters and right in front of the facade was this chutun and it was still intact wow. and we discovered it by accident through by putting this this post so now we have this first Mayan Temascal and we have the water source for it Wow. Yeah, this is how, how exact you can be when you do architecture or archaeology, if you wish to see it, through the same intuition that guided people when they set up the place in the first place. I call my approach intuitive architecture. 
or intuitive, well, both intuitive architecture and intuitive archaeology also. So can I ask, what are you looking at when you make this kind of decisions? I know it's intuitive, but still you must have some things you um, search for. Yeah. Yeah, I look at the energy flow. Mm -hmm. uh, in the end, it's all about energy. We already talked about uh, what really makes the system. It's the efficient flow of energy in the system. The economy is, it shouldn't be anything else but a, a mechanism to create an effective energy flow, efficient, effective energy flow. And this is true when you uh, design a settlement, when you design a house also. And these energy flows, they can be both natural energy flows on the globe all the time. We can identify these energy flows and it's being influenced by what we construct. Hey, so I'm just pausing the episode for a second here. It was way too windy to understand what Bernd said and it was really interesting. So I want to repeat it for you. He said that there are energy grids that natural energy flows through, from hills to valleys. Sometimes it's wind, sometimes it's temperature. Uh, there are many aspects of it in which people nowadays don't have the ability to identify. So when we look for underground water, for example, by using those energy grids, we can identify the water before we've seen it. That's pretty cool, right? All right, let's carry on. So I use these energies and uh, I especially look at how our constructions, how our houses, buildings and so on influence this energy flow. Mm -hmm. And when you combine your direct perception, central perception of energy flow with the structures that you see, that you can come to a lot of conclusions. That, that's very special. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it works, obviously, and we could prove it at several occasions here. We have identified many unseen artifacts, houses, uh, cementations, and so on through this method. Wow. So imagine we can, we can do that in our history also, you know, if we only open our senses for it. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting topic. This, this would be for another talk. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The, <laughs> topic, the, the, to the topic is for me, uh, how many senses does man have and how many of these senses do we use? They tell us we have five senses and some people talk about a sixth sense but in reality we have a much higher potential we just don't use it yeah they are not being trained because senses only work when they are trained when they exercise mm -hmm. well yeah that's for sure for another talk yeah and i would love to explore that um yeah well well we already <laughs> uh passed one hour um, but wow, this is very, very interesting. And I think we can keep going for many hours like this. Um, okay. So if we want to, I, I want to ask you something, um, before we end. So if we say a lot of people are aiming to live a more, uh, sustainable life, I know it's a very big term and very far away from, uh, what it should be. Uh, but if you have to, I don't know, advise someone who wants to live in a more sustainable way, uh, closer to the ways of the forest, what is the one thing a person can do? Well, I think the answer is quite easy. Okay. Uh, you can't expect any, anybody else to create sustainable life for you because we live in a deeply non-sustainable society. So if you want sustainable life, you have to become a protagonist of sustainable life. You have to ask yourself, who am I? 
What are my capacities? What are my virtues? What can I contribute to create sustainable life? And start from your own capacities. And then look at where these capacities might fit in. What is a community? Community to me is a group of people with different capacities, with a variety of capacities. And I believe that any group of, let's say, a dozen or 15 people who have identified their own potential protagonist role in this, this group together can change the whole world. They can create a community. They can solve any problem they want to solve. But you have to start from your own, not from somebody else's uh, proposition. Mm -hmm. Don't follow any other scheme. Uh, don't wait for anybody to solve your problem. Mm -hmm. Become the protagonist. That's it. Live an active life. Yeah. Actively make choices, say. Yes. Yeah. And what does that mean, actively made, make choices? It means uh, act, yeah, really act and uh, try to learn acting. Many people nowadays don't even act anymore. They only go with something. Mm -hmm. uh, second, you need an orientation for your acts. And this orientation for your acts should come from your own will. It should reflect who you are. It should be your passion. Mm. I asked my daughter in Paris once, who does this wonderful job there, and uh, it seems to all flow with her and around her. And as I asked her once, Julia, I see you work so, so much. How do you do that? And she looked at me and said, ah, daddy, what a stupid question. Huh? It's our passion. <laughs> it's our passion. And mm. she meant my passion, her passion. That's our attitude for life. Yeah. And then third aspect, only the third aspect, still very important, is honest knowledge. Yeah, We must deal with knowledge honestly. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is a real important aspect to look at. And that means get out of ideology. Get out of all this fake preset and so on. Look at, only believe what, what's real to you. Find your own ways to, mm -hmm. to deal with the real knowledge. This is something I would especially recommend nowadays in the corona panic crisis. Yeah. Make up your own mind. Don't believe what comes up to you. And this is the only way to change the world and to do something. And then these kind of people can find together. Mm -hmm. One, yeah. I have no idea who should be the new community members here. But I know that when somebody comes with this cap capability of being protagonist of his own passion with a certain experience in, in acting and with an access to honest knowledge, well, they will fit in. That will make a good mix. That will make a good combination. And then we can do anything in very short time. That's amazing. So if any of our listeners uh, want to reach out and connect with you, where, where's the best, best place to find you? Well, we have a small website where we present our concept, which is vitalvillage.community. Mm -hmm. And another one for the um, health aspects of what we are doing, that is vitalvillage.shop. Um, we are trying to bring a lot of information, talks, videos, and so on, on there. And uh, well, the, the very best way is to just come and visit. It's, uh, this is so complex that through communication, you can only grasp a small part of it. But when you're here, you, you really get it. Mm -hmm. We live 
in a very simple, a very natural environment. It's uh, it's very basic, very much to the ground. So there must be a certain affinity to that sort of life. But uh, apart from that, anything is welcome. Anybody welcome. Okay. We want some fifty percent of our population in this community to be Mayan and some fifty percent to be outsiders. We want a mix of experiences. That's beautiful. Okay, I'm gonna share the links you mentioned with the episode, so it will be easy to find you. And I want to thank you again, and to thank our listeners for being with us. Keep sending me emails and messages. I love getting your feedback, and it's very important to me. And before we end, there is one question that I ask all my guests. It's a bit out of our topic, but I'm interested to see what you're going to answer. So this question called. Uh, the wild napkin. Okay. <laughs> uh, so imagine you're going to a bar. I don't know if you go to bars, but let's say you do. And you have a couple of drinks and you, you feel very uh, free. And all of a sudden you have the craziest idea. So you take a napkin and you write it down. And the next day you find it in your pocket. What does it say? So there is no time uh, or money limit. It could be anything. Well, I think it would probably say one very simple thing. Live. Live. Yeah. Mm, that's beautiful. <laughs> I love it. Bern, thank you again for this talk. Thank you, Adi. And I'm looking forward to keep this conversation. Thank you. And until the next time, everyone, go out and talk to strangers. Mm-hmm.